Past Ball Show. Brought to you by JohnPLE.com. I'm not here to argue about other sports. I'm in the baseball business. It's been run cleaner than any baseball business that was ever put out in the 100 years at the present time. Sell the team. Oh, yeah. Welcome aboard. John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Ready to knock out another solid two hours of baseball talk. Just a reminder, as always, you can tweet at me, at John underscore Pielli, and we'll keep the discussion interactive like we always do. I've got some interviews planned coming up in a little bit, so hopefully you guys get a chance to enjoy them, as well as uh, the recap of JohnPielli.com's Bases Empty blog, which you can catch, of course, on my JohnPielli.com website, as well as MTRmedia.com slash John Pielli. So if you're listening to the program on your computer, you could uh, just click over while you're still listening to the program and set, check out some of my recent articles. But obviously, the first thing I'm going to get into is the obviously the Baseball Writers Association of America named their Hall of Fame nominees for the 2014. And of course, we all know that Greg Maddox, Tom Glavin, and Frank Thomas were nominated with a couple guys falling a little bit short. And, you know, I w- it always brings the same thing. And, you know, obviously last year was the first year in a long time that the writers uh, failed to add a player to the Hall of Fame. And obviously the discussion was all about steroids last year because last year's ballot was the first time that a large majority of the first-time eligible players um, either had links to steroids or played in a so-called steroid era. And that was the writer's chance to make a statement And they did last year by not nominating anybody, but it wasn't because there weren't players that are Hall of Fame worthy. And, you know, we got into a discussion last year and I gave you who I felt were my four candidates that I thought should have made the Hall of Fame last year. And that was Craig Biggio, Jeff Bagwell, Mike Piazza and Alan Trammell. And, you know, I, I, I brought this discussion up all the time of why I felt the candidates were qualified to get in. And obviously there is still a amount of suspicion, but the suspicion that's out there about certain players, and I'm talking mainly Piazza and Bagwell, is that there's been nothing that has really been proven that either one of these players use performance-enhancing drugs. And I think a lot of writers, in addition to a lot of fans, feel like they're doing baseball a justice or a service by not putting players in that there is a chance that they may have gone out there and done steroids. But to me, I have to look at it the other way. And it brings us into the guys who ended up making it in this year that if you don't have the evidence that proves that any one of these players that are eligible for the Hall of Fame were steroid users, then I think you have to give them the benefit of the doubt. And a lot of people are still pissed off. They're still angry about the steroids. They feel, you know, though they lauded what steroids ended up doing by saving the game of baseball after the strike of 1994, they turned their back. A lot of these players were artificially enhanced in the numbers and obviously the home run record, which got broken twice within a three-year period. And they look at these players and say, hey, how could you do that? How could you ruin my game? Well, my game was the same one that you were about to walk away from after the strike in 1994. And it was, in fact, steroids that ended up helping it. But I'm not going to segue this into you know, my pro-steroids argument, but I'm going to focus just on the Hall of Fame ballot and the way it's set up. Because obviously there is a rift between those who feel that steroids should not be in the Hall of Fame. And, and, and listen, if that's the case, then you know keep that argument, but be consistent about it. And the problem is is that writers and fans and people that are covering Major League Baseball are not being consistent. 
that if you want to look at the era, and I'm actually going to give a little credit to that baseball writer, what was his name, Ken Gumick or whatever his name is, that uh, decided that he was going to vote for Jack Morris and wasn't going to vote for any players that played in the steroid era. Now, a lot of people knocked him and said, hey, how could you not put Greg Maddox in? How could you not put Tom Glavin in? And of course, Frank Thomas ends up being elected as well. But he actually stood for a point that makes a lot of sense, a point that a lot of people aren't really pointing to, that if there is suspicion about the generation of players and the players that played during this time, then how could you say that any one player is completely exonerated from the possibility of doing steroids? I mean, you know, at least that's one guy that, in my opinion, gets it. You know, for for the the fact that most people, what they want to do, and the general consensus opinion, the popular vote, is for people to choose and pick what players that they think did steroids and they think didn't. And that's not fair if you're going to look to and claim to be assessing a fair judgment on what has gone on here. Because it it isn't fair. If you're going to pick a player that you say, hey, Mike Piazza had back knee, you know, so he had to be doing steroids, while Frank Thomas, who looked just the same size, didn't. To me, it's becoming a popularity contest. And that's what the baseball writers are getting into, which is kind of frustrating the whole process. And it isn't making it a fair vote. Because, you know, the players that are up there that are being judged on what they did on the field are all of a sudden put a cloud of suspicion of the fact that they did steroids when there's no evidence to prove whether they did or didn't. And I'm not just talking about the players that aren't getting enough consideration. I'm talking about players that are getting voted in. Now you got three players that played in so-called the steroid generation that are going to be honored in baseball's Hall of Fame, the highest honor put up there in regards to the greatest players and the best players to ever play the game. And now you look at it, did they do steroids? Did they not do steroids? I think we're all, or the general opinion, is that these three players that have been elected did not do steroids. And I don't think that's a fair enough assessment. I'm not going to knock them. I'm not going to accuse Greg Maddox, Tom Glavin, or Frank Thomas, for that matter, for doing steroids while they played. But the same playing field that was, was, was being on was played with players that did steroids. And are, are they getting more credit because they played with players that were juiced and they had to assume to not be being juiced? Listen, I don't think there's any way to ever figure out whether either one of these three players, and I know people are thinking that it's barbaric, that it's ridiculous, that it's you know ludicrous for me to suggest that either one of these players could be doing steroids, but the possibility still exists. And if we want to exonerate them, if we want to put them in a position where we feel that they absolutely positively could not have possibly touched a performance-enhancing drug throughout their career, then why are we judging other players that have not been implicated, that have not failed a drug test, that have not been in a situation where we know for a fact that they use performance-enhancing drugs during their playing career. Why are those players being treated differently? And I'm going to use Frank Thomas as an example. And this example that I'm using is not saying that Frank Thomas was a steroid user. But the point is, Frank Thomas had a huge body mass. He put up ridiculous numbers, particularly in the first five to seven years of his career. He had a very good career. He had over 500 home runs. His numbers alone merit induction into baseball's Hall of Fame. But so did Mike Piazza, and so did Jeff Bagwell. Same body masses, very good numbers throughout their career. Two players that are Hall of Fame worthy based on the numbers and their career track records. So you tell me that, hey, there's suspicion about Mike Piazza.
And listen, I believe Mike Piazza should be in the Hall of Fame. I've said it 100 times. But where is the suspicion? And how is that going to lead to evidence? Because you're getting to a point where we live in a system where we play this innocent until proven guilty mentality that we say that a guy can go out there and commit a mass murder, but he still has the right to a trial and he's still innocent until he's proven guilty in a court of law. Why does that not apply to Major League Baseball and the use of performance enhancing drugs, which, yes, are illegal, but only illegal if they're found on you, if they're found in your system, or if you are proven to be using them. And if you're not, then you should be innocent until proven guilty. We have guys that we've talked about all the time, like Mark McGuire, who admitted using performance-enhancing drugs. Barry Bonds admitted that he used the cream and the clear, which was a performance-enhancing drug. He just didn't know what he was taking. You want to take him at his word? You don't want to believe him? Whatever. That's what he said. He admitted to using a performance-enhancing drug, whether it was in his system uh, intentionally or not. That is, is the debate that you could carry on and say whatever you want about. But you're talking about guys like Sammy Sosa, who is known to have used performance-enhancing drugs. Manny Ramirez is known to have used performance-enhancing drugs. He failed two drug tests. Alex Rodriguez failed a drug test. Alex Rodriguez admitted to using performance-enhancing drugs from the years of 2001 to 2003. So we're talking about players that are known steroid users and other players that have this quote-unquote suspicion around them should not be put in the same boat with these other players. And I just don't think it's fair. And Mike Piazza came up there. He moved up to 62.2% of the vote. The question is going to be next year. I really do think year three is going to be the turning point. If he continues to trend higher, I think I like his chances a little more. But if he starts to plateau, I think there's going to be enough voters that are going to vote against him being in a Hall of Fame based on the suspicion of using performance-enhancing drugs that his chances are going to decrease of getting in in the 15-year window. But... Looking at my point that I'm making, Frank Thomas, listen, I don't think a lot of people suspect that Frank Thomas used performance-enhancing drugs. And like I said, I'm not, the, I'm not gonna be the first one to say that he did. But how does he get such a clean slate and this opinion of being this pure guy that would never touch a performance-enhancing drug while other players that have equally no proof that they've ever used it are suspected steroid users? That's my problem. And if I was going to put out a ballot this year, I was going to go with my same four that I went with last year, Piazza, Bagwell, Craig Biggio, and Alan Trammell. And then my, my other three would be the three that were elected this year in Glavin, Maddox, and Frank Thomas. And, and listen, I'm not looking to really get a complete solution to this because I don't think there's going to be a fair one. I think people have their bias. You've talked about the Baseball Writers Association of America as always respecting the guys that respected them. You know, for instance, guys like Eddie Murray and Jim Rice had to pay the price a little bit because guys didn't want to vote for them because they weren't real accessible to the media. They didn't like the reporters. And obviously, the guys that are voting are reporters, and that's what they do. So they're going to hold a little bit of a grudge against them. And I get it. I understand why from that perspective. And you got, you're going to have the generation of writers that either are either old-time writers or maybe new school writers that are simply against the use of steroids and performance-enhancing drugs in sports. And if you feel that way, you're not going to ever be swayed from voting for a guy, let's say, like a Barry Bonds or a Roger Clements. And that's understandable. But... Make sure that whatever playing field you're laying out there and you're trying to make a judgment on is fair. 
because I don't think writers are voting fair right now. And it, and and I, I would want pe- more people like the Ken Gumick or however you say his name. I'm not even going to try to say his name right because, uh, you know, he, here's a guy who was a, a baseball writer but is not a known one and kind of some people may say wanted to make a name for himself by announcing the fact that he voted for Jack Morris and nobody else. That's neither here nor there with me. But what he did do that makes a little bit of sense is he took the generation and said, because I can't pick which player did and which player didn't, I'm not going to vote for anybody that played in the generation. And I wish more writers would actually say that than to say this guy did and this guy didn't because there's concrete proof, but I'm also gonna vote for this guy and not vote for this guy because there's no proof. How silly does that sound? To me, it doesn't sound like a person is making a reasonable assessment of the player's value based on whether they did steroids or not. Because, you know, the numbers are the numbers. And you could say a player is a Hall of Fame player or not a Hall of Fame player based on the numbers of their career. What we're judging here is not whether a player should be in a Hall of Fame or not based on their numbers. What we're judging here and what the writers are judging is essentially when they're making this vote is whether a player did or did not use performance-enhancing drugs. And because it's not cut and dry, it leaves it up to the mind to assume which players did and which players didn't, which is not fair. So I think if you have a whole group of players that you're just not sure about, that whole group is being held out. And if you look at the way people are voting, I mean, you're going to vote for a generation of players. And I'm not, listen, I'm not going to be the first one or maybe in addition to a couple people that have said this to try to accuse any of the three newest Hall of Fame inductees that they ever used performance enhancing drugs. But the same evidence that exists that says that maybe they did not do it exists for the other players that I just mentioned. And somebody wants to go out there and say Craig Biggio was using performance-enhancing drugs based off a whim, I I don't don't get that either. And Craig Biggio is, uh, you know, obviously a guy who people are detracting from him in regards to his Hall of Fame candidacy for different reasons. I mean, there's the very small majority, and that's the couple people that think that maybe he used performance-enhancing drugs, the same reason that they think Bagwell did or think Piazza did or think any, any other player that doesn't have direct proof that they used performance-enhancing drugs did. The Craig Biggio argument is a little different for the most part because some people look at his numbers, the fact that he played 20 years, the fact that he got 3,000 hits, and they say he never really dominated. He was never really the best player in a game. When you think of the generation of players that just played, Craig Biggio doesn't come to your mind as one of the best that played during that time. And I actually understand that argument to a point. But I think the fact that he played 20 years, he played multiple positions, he was a good defensive player, he, he knew how to get on base, he also was you know got 3,000 hits, which for the exception of Rafael Palmero, who's being held out because of performance snatching drugs, you know, 3,000 hits is a lock for the Hall of Fame, and that's why I vote would vote for Craig Biggio. I would vote for Jeff Bagwell and Mike Piazza because of their numbers, because they had very good careers, and based on their numbers, do belong in the Hall of Fame. And that being said, we want to get into the whole thought of whether they did or did not do steroids. I want to stick with the philosophy that exists in this country, and that is you're innocent until proven guilty. Show me the proof that Mike Piazza or Jeff Bagwell did use performance enhancing drugs throughout their career. And I understand this gives them a way that maybe they could have done it and nobody will ever know about it. But if you have proof, use it. If you have evidence, use it. 
I mean, that's the thing that bothers me about the way Major League Baseball is set up in regards to the use of performance-enhancing drugs. The public opinion, which, first of all, nobody cares about what you think. But, you know, the right, the, these players have to have some sort of rights. And if for some reason we're going to implicate them and say they use performance-enhancing drugs, I honestly think that should be grounds for a lawsuit for any one of these players. And that's the one thing that I'm kind of surprised that hasn't really been touched on yet, that how come any of these players, if Mike Piazza feels so strongly that he's being held out of the Hall of Fame because some people think that he did steroids, if he was that sure that he didn't, then why, why, doesn't he, why isn't he, he considering legal action? I mean, I think a lot of these players, and particularly ones that maybe didn't do it, there maybe there are some players that people feel did steroids just because of the way they looked, but actually didn't do it. And if they didn't, then I think they have the right to go, you know, to some sort of legal action against those who are slandering them, because this is obviously an, an incidence of slander. If this is a situation where these players are being accused of doing something they didn't do. And when we're talking about innocent until proven guilty, that should give these players some sort of legal action. So that's the one thing that I'll say that's kind of against my point a little bit about, hey, there's no proof that these players didn't do it. Then, you know, why are they being you know, accused of doing something that there's no proof that they did? Well, from the other angle, you look at what Roger Clemens did by trying to sue Brian McNamee. Uh, obviously, that didn't really look out the best in his favor when his own teammate, Andy Pettit, you know, did say, even though he didn't say it in, in the court hearing and it, his te- testimony was inadmissible, uh, you know, that he, he did know that he, that, he, that he did steroids. I mean, you know, you got to look at it from a legal action standpoint and say these players, if they're that innocent or not guilty, then they maybe should put some legal action out there on their own, uh, their own rights. So, uh, you know, in regards to the ballot, you know, I told you about Alan Trammell. If you read my blog post two years ago, I've been uh, talking about how Alan Trammell was Barry Larkin. And if Barry Larkin was so much of a Hall of Famer, then why would you not put Alan Trammell in? I think this is one of the biggest oversights that the Baseball Writers Association of America has, 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 has just kind of seen. I mean, this is ridiculous how you could not acknowledge, you know, not only the fact that Alan Trammell's career was a mirror image of Barry Larkin based on games played, production, hits, you know, uh, you know home runs, batting average, gold gloves. Uh, the fact that they played the same position and the fact that they both won a World Series championship and both spent their entire career with the same team, the, these are all parallels that I think you know more people should look at. And hopefully the Baseball Writers Association of America, if not within the next you know couple of years when Trammell's on the ballot, maybe afterwards with the Veterans Committee, they could obviously acknowledge the fact that his career was Barry Larkin's. They are one and the same. In my opinion, either they should both be in a Hall of Fame or they should both not be in a Hall of Fame. Once again, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. We're going to take our first break of the program. Be back with a lot more great stuff after this. I'm Karen Siaska-Zeltman from Italian Hour. When my car needs service, I take it to Jonathan's Complete Car Care. Jonathan's Complete Car Care is the best for auto repairs, tires, diagnostics, and tune-ups. You can depend on Jonathan's for the best service at prices you can afford. Give Jonathan's Complete Car Care a call, 609-601-6460. They work hard to give you the service you need. Jonathan's Complete Car Care works with many vehicles, including Mercedes-Benz, BMW, Volvo, Volkswagen, and Audi. Make Jonathan's Complete Car Care the company you keep. 609-601-6460. 
call today for a free estimate or visit. Find us on the web at jonathanscompletecarcare.com and like us on Facebook and find us on Twitter. You're listening to MTR Radio, powered by mtrmedia.com. Welcome back, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. We're going to get into our interview segment of the program. First interview I'm going to play is one that I recorded this past weekend. I actually am uh, kind of raising a bar a little bit on uh, interviews of 2014 in regards to the Passball Show. Just wait till you see some of the guests I got coming on. Um, this was the first of a series of interviews I'm actually going to do at ballplayers' houses. And it took a little bit of a trip down to Virginia and had a chance to meet uh, one-time Washington Senators left-hand pitcher Don Lown, and Don is, uh, you know, you know, he only got a chance to pitch in two games in the major leagues, but his major league debut was a complete game shutout for the Senators against the Boston Red Sox, and he, you know, he gets into a lot of things that went on in his career, and he realized that, you know, the story that he has to tell is a little more than just that two games that he pitched. And uh, you know, hopefully you guys enjoy this spot. And like I said, dude, we're going to have a real good year with the Passball Show interviews. So just stay tuned to johnpielli.com, uh, my Twitter uh, uh, handle at john underscore Pielli, And I'll keep you posted on future interviews. So here's Don Lown, former Washington Senators pitcher of the 1960s. It's John Pielli. I'm blessed to be at the home of former Major League pitcher Don Lown. Don, thanks for having a couple minutes today. I appreciate being over your ass. Well, thank you uh, for being here and making it convenient. No, absolutely, man. Of course, uh, Don had a chance to pitch for the 1964 Washington Senators team. And, you know, tell us a little bit about, you know, being part of the Major League team that season. Because obviously a lot happened before and a lot happened afterwards. But, you know, center yourself around 1964, what you were thinking coming in, and if it turned out to be the season that you hoped it would. Well, it had been, I was on kind of an elevator, if you will, from one organization climbing up the ladder um, from double A to a real thrill pitching a Cooperstown game and then go to Toronto, triple A, and pitch about uh, a month and a half there and then coming to the big leagues. And through all of it, I felt extremely confident that I'm a major league pitcher. You know, I'm, I'm on my way to the big league, or I'm doing what I need to do to be there. So it was never a self-doubt. It was like, that's what you get paid to do. I looked back then, I thought, uh, sure, you have the adrenaline rush and those kinds of things, but as far as being on a major league ball field and uh, playing major league baseball, uh, I hadn't been exposed to too much of that before then. As a matter of fact, I don't know that I ever walked on a major league field before that time but it was not it was not all the um, nervousness and 
uh, uncertainty. When I warmed up, I felt like you know, I throw strikes. So I felt really pumped up. Uh, I, I just never had any self-doubt. I figured this, this is what I work for. And this is what I do. I get paid to get guys out. And that's what I've always wanted to do ever since I signed my first contract. Now, what stands out to me in getting a chance to speak with you earlier is the fact that you are very fundamentally sound in regards to the mechanics of pitching, in regards to you know making sure your head, head is in the right position, you're repeating the same delivery, you know everything involved in that. What do you, what would you consider the best influence that you had to keep you so fundamentally sound in regards to pitching? Well, from where I came from, there had to be a lot of trial and error. I mean, it was just like you are all at once pitching from once a week, maybe, uh, on Sunday afternoon, and then not being able to throw until Thursday at practice. Uh, that's that's where I started, and I pitched none in the high school, so mechanically. I was an accident waiting to be happened. And there's a lot of things that I had to learn um, mechanically, and I just was like a sponge. I figured these people um, uh, were going to take the time to show me things. I better take my time to do what they said. And, a question. and Charlie Keller was a big influence uh, as far as some of the, the things that, that guided me into pro ball. And uh, it was one of those was, if people take time to show you something, you get the time to work for you. So that was, you know, I was like a sponge, like I said, Fred Waters the first couple of years. He thought I should be someplace else because I was, um, should be protected, but I was with him and I learned, I watched him and I, I watched mechanics because I had to, I had to really get into the strike zone. And that's, that's where my success was. And, uh, everybody else's and uh, being wild uh, got you an exit to uh, back home to the gas pumps. No question. Man. Once again, John Fialli here with Don Lown. Now, 1964, before you end up making your major league debut, you're involved in a very good pitcher's duel with Mel Stoudemire. Uh, take us back to that game and kind of retell the story about that, that classic pitching matchup. Well, Mel had a terrific year, and he was on his way up, uh, as later it proved. And as a matter of fact, he may have gone up that night because uh, um, Ralph Halk was in the stands, and, uh, and in Richmond it was full. It wasn't a place to be had, so it had been uh, well advertised that he was coming in, and Mel was coming in, and then, you know, I got fortunate to be in the rotation with Sparky Anderson and I got a chance to pitch against him which which somewhat surprised me that was my first start at AAA and uh, we had just left Toronto and so it didn't matter it's a ballpark you try three three chances to hit the ball and three strikes and uh, I got a chance to to get you out so I just tried to throw strikes and uh, uh, it's exactly the way it turned out uh, Sparky let me go 11 and two thirds. I think there's somewhat of a mistake here in the scorecard somewhere, but uh, 
he was going to give me 12 innings, and uh, after we got through the ninth, and Mel Sotomar pitched nine, he struck us, he shut us out for nine, and then uh, I was fortunate enough to shut out the uh, uh, Richmond Club for uh, for 11 and two thirds, and then I got relieved. But uh, I really felt good. It was seeing the fastball was running good because there were a lot of pop flies. And, uh, you know, that ballpark wasn't a bad ballpark to play in. I mean, it was as, as lit as any club in, in, the, in the International League back then, as I recall. And, uh, uh, but that, that's pretty much the way it went. Of course, coming out on the losing end, but the thing you walk away with is success. You know if you've done what you could do, if the guys get two runs, you win. Uh, you go into the ninth inning because you know, there's only one guy on, and when Sparky came to get me, he came uh, with the idea of Ron Mishwitz being uh, uh, on the team all year or most of the year. Uh, Sparky had a lot of confidence in him, and he, he said to me, uh, let me uh, bring Ron in. He's really pitched well for me all year. He said, now let him finish this one up. And Sparky's job was to manage. My job was to pitch, and I left you know, out without any discussion. And, you know, towards the end of the 1964 season, you get a chance to make a couple starts at the major league level. The first game is at home against the Boston Red Sox. You end up throwing a complete game shutout uh, about, if I'm not mistaken, about 10 days later, something like that, around there. You end up pitching a game in Fenway Park against the same Red Sox. You end up being on the losing end of a 7 nothing game. But talking to you off the air, you, you had mentioned to me about how you felt you pitched as well in the second game, if not better, than you did in the first game. And I really felt I did. My ball moved well. I knew some of the guys that were on the Red Sox club. Uh, it was pretty much the same club, I think, that I faced uh, in my first start. And um, the differences probably were strictly um, the pitches I made at home plate. And, you know, you can't be behind in the count. And I was pitching the corners. In, in 10 days, you usually lose a little something. But uh, late in the year, uh, because of the rankings of the teams, rookies couldn't start, at least Mr. Hodges wouldn't start rookies against first division ball clubs. So I had to sit on my hands, basically. Um, you know, I worked on stuff and, and uh, in those 10 days. But uh, he was not going to allow a rookie to pitch. He did put me in a bullpen. And my day to pitch, I thought, would have been against the Baltimore Orioles. It would have been my second start. And I thought he was just wanting to surprise me. When I went out in the bullpen, I thought, well, maybe because there wasn't a starter then. That was the other thing. You, you have fixed starters. If you have a, a guy that is regularly starting for you, you don't interrupt his um, rhythm or you don't take him out of the starting rotation. But Claudestine had already been out to dry. He was done. They were going to trade for him with L.A. And, and a lot of us knew something about it, but we didn't know what the particulars were. But he was going to be a 13, 14, 15 game winner that year, and that was the way it was going to end. So he wasn't a factor. And he and I were roommates a few times, but he wasn't going to be pitching. But 
when I pitched in Boston, uh, throwing strikes on the corners, not working the middle of the plate. It almost was like the umpire wanted me to come down the middle, show him that I could throw strikes. And I just never learned to throw down the middle. I mean, I was lucky to learn to be able to hit the corners. Yeah, and I just, now there's times when you've got a guy set up and you just blow it. But a lot of times you'll overthrow and that'll get you in more trouble or not. But I'm a control pitcher at this time, so I'm moving the ball around. And uh, a lot of balls were mishit. Uh, not anything sharp. I think there was one ball that was hit sharp. Dick Stewart hit a single back through the middle. I don't think there was one of those five. Five hits, I believe, is what they got off. I mean, I can't remember, but uh, you know, the, the comedy of things that happened from the start of that game uh, and to the time I left the the mound. Um, really, uh, the sports announcer after the game came down, a gentleman by the name of John McClain. And he said, he just started shaking his head as soon as he walked in the dressing room. And he said, Don, you really had to be here to see this one. He said, I, I've never seen a guy step on his glove, a shortstop, and head with a double play ball and head to right field, and his glove be back at shortstop. He said, so that was a perfect double play ball. The other incident was a ground ball hit top to John Kennedy at third. And it was so slow, when he got to him, it went straight in the air, almost took his hat bill, right. and got his glove up, and the ball stopped right behind him before it got to the outside grass, uh, the outfield grass. So it was just those kinds of things that were happening. And when Gil came out, Gil says to me, he says, well, Lefty, Night's not your night, <laughs> and and then uh, of course, uh, amazing. Uh, the last time I faced Carl Yastrzemski, uh, he hit a fly ball, routine fly ball to right field, Willie Kirkland to right field, and the short fence, uh, meaning the height of it, was about 42 inches wing height, we call it in the construction trade. But anyway, he. Uh, he juggled the ball to grass and then got onto the morning track, still somewhat juggling it. And I thought, it looks like he's trying to drop the ball out over the fence That's the way guy. this game was going. So, uh, but he held on to it and came in. And uh, uh, but Carl, it, it was it was a fly ball. It wasn't a ball that was hit a rocket style or like he hit you know many many of them and. Uh, and it was, I was fortunate to get him out and really hold on to the ball. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you end up uh, that season, of course, uh, being your last experience in the major leagues. But, you know, in, in doing so, you managed to have a lot of success against Jastrzemski. And you were able to get him out every time that he was, he was off the plate. Was there any particular way you remember pitching to Carl Jastrzemski? Or was there any advantage that you felt that you had against him outside of your natural confidence? Well, not facing him before, and and can't really recall us going over at hitters. Joe uh, Hodges with me was uh, not to clutter things, and it seemed like with Ken Resser, who had caught me at Toronto for, I think I had about a four and three record there, a four and one, four and two, something like that. But but he caught me, so he knew how I pitched. So we were going to go to my strength, not to theirs, and and you know hopefully 
um, Kenny would have been talking to um, maybe Mike Bromley might have been the catcher, the other catcher. I noticed Don Zimmer was just learning to catch. He was there, but he wasn't catching. And so they would have traded things or were to set up or you want, you know, if he's controls on, that kind of stuff. But it wasn't anything we sat down. Here you sit down with a rookie and, and you know, you hope he throws strikes. But well, the way I pitched Carl is to try to get out on top of it. I had, uh, I had, um, Matty Alou, uh, Felix Mantilla. He was a second baseman. He let off with a double and nobody out. And uh, so I'm getting through the outs. And, and Carl comes up and he's the second out. And, you know, I know I got to get a ground ball here. He's a left hand hitter. Anything on the ground that's going to move this guy over to third, a chance to get him in. So you're thinking low, you're thinking always down. And you're also moving as far on the left-hand side of the rubber as you can. You don't know who he faces, but that wouldn't be new to him, but it would be a place that I wanted to be because I felt like I'd get off that quick, you know, and that's just my strategy. I'd pitch left-handers hard in. If I'm coming at them, I'm coming at them really hard. And then uh, straight change is like a lame duck if I go with it, but it has to be away and low. Exactly. So that was my way I was thinking of him and uh, the way I go back. And and then all at once I get into a position where I, I've got to challenge him. I had to throw a fastball, and, and the fastball, just, it was a good sinker. And, uh, and uh, it struck him out. He was my first major league strikeout, and the key to that was the ball sunk, and uh, he looked, as he walked across home plate, he glanced in my direction, somewhat between third base and like at the shortstop, and kept walking, and uh, I kind of remembered that because, you know, you know what he was and who he was, and so he never never knew anything about me. So it was it was something you remember, you file away. And uh, the other two, other three or four times I faced him, uh, seven altogether. It was just you know working hard and uh, he had success and and uh, maybe he was tired at the end of the year. I, I, you know, but I was fortunate to get him out seven times. Hey, no question about it. Let's get John Fielli here with former major league left-handed pitcher Don Lown now. You know, after the 1964 season, you end up going back to the minors. And, uh, you know, in my opinion, you, I don't think you pitched too badly. You know, you made 21 starts that year, you know, ERA in the mid-fours. You don't get back to the major leagues at that point. You know, leads to the next couple of years where you're battling, have some ups and downs, but you never make it back to the major leagues again. Tell us a little bit about that time, which I'm sure had to be tough for you. And what did you do year to year to try to progress yourself where you could get yourself back into the major leagues? Well, I, to say the, the least, it was disappointing in spring training. Um, Gil Hodges himself said that I was going to get an excellent chance to make the ball club. And, and I felt uh, that that was going to happen. So all at once there was a trade, like I said earlier, about Claude Osteen going to the Dodgers. Frank Howard and uh, seven other left-handed pitchers. So what does that tell a left-handed pitcher? Uh, you better be on your stuff, but you also better get a shot to pitch because you can't make it. You can't make it unless you're in the game. So 
My job was to get down to spring training. I started throwing early in my high school gym. Jim Duckworth and I were together, and we drove down two weeks ahead of time. And we were ready to pitch batting practice probably 20 minutes uh, when the ball club started to arrive. So we were on what they call Baxter Bunkhouse. We were staying actually in the in the clubhouse and uh, didn't have any money back then. So that was the best place for us and uh, certainly the most economical. And uh, so he and I are throwing every day and a couple of catchers show up. So we're throwing and uh, some time for batting practice. Uh, you know, we're ready, but the the old timers come in, they throw two or three minutes, and then they go uh, change shirts, and you see them a half hour later or whatever. Yeah. But, but I'm looking at left-handers, and uh, so I'm, I'm I know I got to be all my stuff. So so that was a disappointment coming off there, not really what I consider getting a real chance. And then I did get an opportunity to pitch against Houston and hyperextended my elbow. So. Coming off of that, then I came off with success. I pitched against the world champion twins and got them out, and uh, no runs, three innings, and uh, that was it. And of course, I was sent out the next two, three days. But over the years, between that time, my job was to get myself in a complete situation. And I can go on with that if you would care for me to, because it covers a lot. But it uh, it's about what your weaknesses are and strengthening those. I was always fundamentally sound fielding yes. uh, and I felt good about it, but I needed to be able to come up with a good pickoff move. And Selkirk had mentioned that at one point sometime along the way and and I came came up with um, turning a fastball over for a, for a legitimate sinker. Um, I never experienced uh, other than natural pitches and then to be able to, to grasp the ball out between my uh, ring finger and my middle finger uh, make a turnover was really a big help because it was an inside-out pitch and worked really well and along with my straight change slider and, and curveball to show but fastball was a money pitch and slider certainly was uh, a natural question. Yeah, once again, John Kelly here with Don and Lau. Now, you know, was there any point from 1965 to the last year that you pitched professionally in 1969? Did you give any thought to giving it up at any point, let's say as the years go by and you find yourself so much further removed from the major leagues? I didn't because they kept me pretty much at a triple-A level with the exception of uh, 65, I was in Hawaii in 65, 66, part of 66, and I was sent to double A. Uh, and George Chase was the manager in, in Hawaii, and he and I had an agree agreement and understanding that, you know, hey, uh, you're going to the big leagues from double A. You don't need to be out here. So, but you need to get yourself straightened out. And I was just on the verge of coming out of a first losing season. And I hyper uh, extended uh, a side muscle and tough breathing, but so I got through it because you're, I was really overthrowing. I was trying to get myself back. And funny enough, um, uh, when I was in Double A, George Chase came to to Double uh, A in York, and at that point I was being sent. Back to Hawaii, I got myself in an excellent position. So they needed pitchers. Uh, guys are going to do their two-week duty, so they needed pitchers in Hawaii. So 
Uh, I had pitched seven out of eight days and warmed up both ends of a double header for, and had no idea that I was leaving or going anywhere uh, other than the big leagues. And then when he and I talked, I said, George, you know what the problems were, the promises were, I was going, once I was good enough to go back, and he said, I know, but you're moving up. So that's what you have to. So I packed my bags and overnight. I was in, in Oki City and joined Hawaii and started out there and uh, was ready to go back to the big leagues. Had a telegram to George Selkirk, my first start, and I, I was successful. And uh, uh, I felt real good about that ball game. And when I heard that I was going back to the big leagues from the Chief Scout, Harry Strom, uh, my world just opened up. I mean, it was like, you know, I was walking out of the dark into the sunlight. It was just I knew I was I was good enough to be back there again, and uh, maybe this time I hang on and uh, somebody will keep me or somebody else will get me. Yeah, absolutely, and no question about it. Now, you know, you end up uh, you know after you stopped pitching in 1969. If I'm not mistaken, I got the year right. I believe I do. 1970 is the last year of. Washington Senators baseball, 71, so going into 72 is when the, uh, the you know, they become the Texas Rangers, they move over to Arlington. Um, did, was there anything that went through your head in regards to uh, a shock, a surprise, to know that the team that you had pitched for within the organization for so long was no longer going to exist as is? The thing that I didn't know was the ramifications and things that happen to professionals when the sport does leave their hometown or their town, let's say, uh, and you've taken up residence or you may be, you know, as I was, born and raised right around the Washington area. Uh, and the veterans knew uh, that baseball taken away you're basically out of the game, uh, and you're out, and we were out 33 years. So I had no, had I been able to hang on to the big leagues in some fashion somewhere, um, I may have been able to move on to coaching or something of that nature, but because, and I didn't find this out till later talking to Jim Hannon, uh, that, you know, it, that's most of the towns, they pick up the ba baseball players, stay in the organization. I mean, you don't lose your knowledge about the game just because it's not here anymore. So uh, the, the difference was that people thought you weren't locally. I think this, this there were some maybe enviable, enviable positions that they, people have, and maybe they were just uh, not really certain of your abilities and then other people were and they gave you opportunities to coach if you wanted to coach I'm sure and I coached high school and I also had a mini clinic that I put on and did things but but it was never anything ever publicized because baseball is not going on here for 33 years so you're not getting any press you're not getting any recognition uh, you think the scouts would make the rounds, but hey, everybody then was looking out for themselves, trying to hang on to the game, and I was just the opposite. I felt like I never wanted to be a baseball bum, and that drove me away from baseball for almost 49 years. I mean, it was a long time, and I just, I felt like I, I didn't make it. I, I wasn't happy about my success. I felt like a, I had failed at something that I really had a great opportunity to do and I did well and I was confident that I could continue to do it. I just needed uh, a, a little bit more of a, 
a situation where someone was really looking at my what I had to offer. And uh, once the baseball team leaves the, club, leaves the town, it's, it's death to the players unless they follow another minor league or major league team. And I didn't go to Baltimore, and, and uh, uh, so that wasn't something that I sought. So. Yeah, absolutely. Now you end up uh, Washington gets themselves a National League franchise for the 2005 season. Montreal Expos end up coming over there, and then at the end of 2007, you end up becoming part of the last game at RFK Stadium, where Frank Howard was also there, Fred Valentine, Dick Bosman, Hank Allen, Ron Hansen, amongst others. Uh, tell us a little bit about that night, because it was the closing of RFK Stadium, a little bit of history going with it, but of course, you know, in wake of the new ballpark, which the Nationals play at now. Well, the very first thing is the reaction that you have being on the shelf for 33 years and then all at once being called and invited to the closing. And to me, that was extremely gratifying. I can't tell you my feelings about it, uh, how emotional I was, and when the limousine pulled up in front of my house to pick me up, it was like, this is what it was all about. You know, you almost get it to a point where you forget, you know, being at the top of the rung of a ladder and deserving to be there. That's the main thing that I've carried with me over all these many years and took baseball basically out of my thought process. Now the ones here, they had invited me back to the stadium I had success in and um, it, it was extremely, the people were extremely cordial. Uh, Mr. Mark Lerner uh, addressed me a couple of times. Uh, I just, I had some business relationships with him and I don't know that he and I ever knew at the time he did it, but I was in the brick business and he was in the construction business and I got a nice job from him. Uh, called him directly, talked with him, he said, well Don, yeah, he says, uh, we want to use your brick as long as it's a good match. And I didn't know that he had any idea who I was and, and still didn't think of it. And to this day, I'm not sure that he remembers any of that or would have remembered my name. But in any event, he's, he's been kind to me. His people are terrific. He's got a great organization. And I say that with all sincerity. I see too, too much of the stuff going up in smoke and people trying to be uh, uh, hanger-oners, I call them. But, but he's deserving of what he has. Um, He's a baseball man, and his family is as well, and it's a terrific organization that they have. I'm glad they got the franchise. There was others involved, and I think the right guys got it. And those. But um, as far as that day, 45,000-plus people cheering you, and, and uh, I'm at my favorite position. I'm on first base, and I can pick it like pepper. I can play it with the best of them. And uh, I had... Uh, a lot of experience after I got out of pro ball playing slow pitch softball at first base and just and played before that. That was yeah, my absolutely. favorite position. So I, I knew what to do over there and it was just great to be at first base. A lot of it put me over there I guess because I was an extra pitcher. <laughs> but anyway, I, I felt very at home and uh, 
I wasn't used to the cameras and where they were. The first baseman kept telling me uh, where the cameras were. I couldn't say that. I wouldn't look at the cameras anyway. I guess if I'm in the dugout, I might sketch up from one or two. But, you know, I'm not a camera guy. I'm a people guy, and I like the people. I looked at the people and I waved and applauded them. I felt like, you know, there's a lot of heartfelt appreciation for everyone. Baseball's coming back. And uh, they had to be a very proud time for everyone in that stadium. That so this was real. This was going to happen. There's a question. And I tell you, last question I'm going to ask you once again, John Fialli here with Don Lau. Now, the what you mentioned before about feeling things being a disappointment, uh, you didn't live up to your own expectations. And all these years later, you get a call and you get honored with a group of other Washington Senators players. Was there any fulfillment within that? Did that make you feel a little bit better about what you had, had, had left and lived on for so many years? Anytime you're around players, and this was something that was a little different back when I played, uh, if you're around players, there is a camaraderie there. There is an appreciation of respect mutually, but there's also the team situation that it's there's it only 16 teams, so everybody was a you know fighting for a job. So the the end result was the team uh, where the pitching staff particularly. I mean, it was like you're after everybody's job. I remember going into Red Sox Stadium with Don, uh, one of the left-handed pitchers, um, telling me you're not going to be, you're not going to believe the monster, the red, the green monster. It's going to be like paint on your shoulders. <laughs> and uh, I think Don Zimmer told him to zip it because that was like my second start. Well, it didn't matter. I mean, I'm I'm going to pitch my game, whatever that is, but. But to get back to uh, RFK and to be included, that was extremely great. It was a great honor until some guy came out of Baltimore as a writer and came over and we were signing autographs and I mean people were in line all the way around the stadium, it seemed, and they just kept coming and this guy uh, asked me, he says, uh, are you embarrassed to be included in this group closing the stadium? He said, you actually didn't accomplish that much. I looked over at Freddie Valentine. Freddie says, he was a major league pitcher, wasn't he? And I, I felt so good about that. That's teammates. And I saw Freddie Valentine have the greatest year I ever saw a ball player have. Freddie to me, uh, in Hawaii in 65, was absolutely the best best center fielder I had ever played with. And he had a terrific year, and I'll never forget it. And I tell him every time I see him. And he deserved exactly his final shot to get back to the big leagues, and he got there. But um, no, the that was that was a disappointing time. It was a downtime, but then the teammate picks you right up, and that's what they do. Yeah, no that's question, what, man. That's a pretty much tell the story. Teammates stick together backed by a very good man and Fred Valentine, and you are as well, Don. I appreciate you giving me a couple minutes. Thank you for allowing me in your home, and best of luck to you. John, my pleasure, and thank you. I hope I haven't been too worried. <laughs> rock over London, rock on Chicago. Wheaties, represent champions.